They don't. They have customer service. I guess, you know, but there were so many cartoons about complaint departments. But in the days that there were complaint departments, you went, you said, I bought this toaster, it was supposed to work, I plugged it in, nothing happened. They give you another toaster. That's a, that's a reasonable, that, that's not a complaint, that's just pointing out to somebody, this toaster is not what it's supposed to be. Okay, we fix it. But this heating climate is the result of what happened. This politics is the result of everything. Maybe complaint is not a good word. Maybe um, maybe it's uh, making known to people or speaking up. Or Anyway, I didn't get too far on what do I want to say if this was the last thing I was saying. Because every time I, 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 I wrote this whole thing and then I wrote something else, I said, no, I have to start with this. Then I wrote, no, I really have to read this book because it's so important to talk about that book. Then, as I was going out the door, I, uh, I, I got uh, um, an email from a friend of mine that I looked at. And uh, I looked at that and I thought, no, I really have to start with that. So it just, I decided I'll get here and I'll start where I start. But I am very happy to see so many people that I used to know and haven't seen in a while. I want to make a special deal out of introducing Jean again, who's come to visit us today. You want to stand up? Can you stand up, Jean, still? A little bit, just so people can see you. Jean is Marty's mother, and Marty is here every week. And Jean is about to have her 101st birthday. And Jean and her husband, what was your dad's whole name? George Mills Hauser. George Hauser. Jean and George Hauser were very great civil rights activists in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 40s. George Hauser was actually um, expelled, what do you call it? From uh, no, 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 no. From uh, um, um, clergy school, objector and the seminary. So George Hauser went to jail over protesting, having to go, registered to go kill people in a war, such, uh, such a conviction. And George Hauser died three years ago? In 2015. In 2015, when he was 99. And at his birthday party, I remember, he was, he was very ill and tired and not so alert, but he got tremendously alert. His birthday was a sing-along, was part of the party, when everybody sang We Shall Overcome. And he, was re- and he sat in his wheelchair and conducted it from the front of the room. And Gene Hauser may have not been so on the front lines with him, but pretty much his helpmeet and his support all that time. So I was glad you were going to come today, Jean, because I thought we could sing happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday, dear Jean. Happy birthday to you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really was I just have to say I don't just have to I am electing to say that when they had the big fire in Sonoma County Jean and other residents of the senior living facility that she lives at were evacuated in the middle of the night in a bus to a more secure place because the fire was approaching that area and I had the word from Marty, her daughter, the following day that the uh, people working at the facility had remarked on Jean's resilience because here are all these quite elderly and uh, not so able people that they had to load into buses in the middle of the night and start driving in the dark to someplace else. And uh, Jean, uh, the report was, was alert and looking around and saying, this is the first time I've ever had an experience like this. <laughs> so that's a really good way to live. I, thank you very much. I have no complaints. That <laughs> you were the perfect example for the point I was trying to make. Who has never been here before? If you've never been here for a Wednesday morning, please stand up so we can acknowledge you for a minute. Hello, what's your name? Lawrence, where do you live? Good, I'm glad you came today. Thank you very much. What's your name? Where do you live? Oh, okay, across the... Good, my grandson lives in Forest Knowles. He's just moved there. And I'm glad you came, David. Uh-huh. So are you doing the whole West Coast or? Um, here to visit a friend and to come here. Well, that's wonderful. Will you be here all week? Mm -hmm. um, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the end of what I'm going to teach today is that I don't know is the best answer for everything. So <laughs> you anticipated the whole denouement of what I'm going to say. So. I'm glad you're here. Barbara lives in San Francisco. Barbara and I actually know each other, but it's the first time we're meeting each other here, so I'm glad you're here. Okay, I'm happy you're here. And here. I'm glad you're here, Devorah. Oh, good. I'm glad you came. Did you drive up this morning? Yeah. Big drive. I'm glad. Thank you for coming. Well, welcome. This class happens every Monday, every Wednesday. <laughs> every Wednesday from, it was one of the two initial classes that was started here 25, however many years ago. Bef just when we had a temporary building which was set up across the road from here. Monday night and Wednesday morning became permanent established things. And they both continue that way. So on any Wednesday, either I'm here 
or um, my colleague Donald Rothberg is here. And for the next six months, my colleagues uh, Heidi Bourne and uh, Tony Bernhardt will be here on the Wednesdays when I would have been here, and Donald will continue to be here on the other Wednesdays. And they're wonderful teachers, so I, I hope you come and enjoy them. And then on the 1st of January, uh, there's a day long, and for some years I have anchored that day long, and I, I guess I will. I, I, I think it'll be the last thing that I don't do is January 1st. Because I love the idea of starting again, which is, it's just such a, it's, it's a made-up idea because you remember that period of time when suddenly everybody was writing today is the first day of the rest of your life? It always is. It always is. When people go to AA, it's the first day of their sober life or any other 12-step program. Anytime you say, from now on, I'm going to do this, people take vows in a marriage. It's the first day of their marriage. People take vows in a religious tradition, that's their entry life. So every day is, can be a first day of something. But there's something about the symbolism of changing the calendar or talking about a new, a new, a new year cycle happening. It seems that it would be funny, I think, to have it happen in uh, the Southern Hemisphere. You know? It's supposed to get dark early on New Year's Eve, you know. But anyway, but that's because I'm used to this. So I want to talk about really what would be the most important thing if if this were the only time I was going to say something. I don't know if that's what I'll say. <laughs> if I have a, if I if I have the ability to say something with my last breath, I have to think about it, but. Um, because then people would make a big fuss. They'd say, oh, she said da-da-da-da. So <laughs> maybe I'll have a contest. <laughs> people could submit their suggestions. <laughs> One of my daughters to whom I asked that same question, and I said it should be a seven-syllable remark. Because seven syllables are supposed to be very potent mantras. She said, oh, here's a seven-syllable remark. You could say... Housework is a waste of time. So that's a... <laughs> could be right up there when I have no complaints. <laughs> so we can think about it. But I really thought about what are the important things. And last week I remember enjoying very much talking about what have I actually learned uh, in the last 42 years. It's 42 years this summer that I went to my first mindfulness retreat. And what did I actually learn? And was there any day that from one day to the next I thought, aha, I'm a different person? No, I don't think so. Uh, I like very much the story about uh, Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, who said, uh, um, studying Dharma is like walking around in San Francisco in the summertime when it's quite foggy, he said, um, you don't need an umbrella. Nobody thinks about using an umbrella in the summer. It's not actually raining. It's just foggy. He said, but you walk around enough in the fog, and all of a sudden you say to yourself, wet. 
So that's, I think, what happens. You hang around in Dharma for a long time, and all of a sudden you think, what? I got that, you know? I really got that. Things, it really, complaining is not helpful. Homemade expressions like whenever is heard a discouraging word. That, you know, remember that song? Uh, whenever is heard a discouraging word. It's nice not to hear a discouraging word these days, by the way. It would be such a pleasure to not hear a discouraging word. But really, not meaning not doing anything, but meaning not contributing to dispiritedness. So how do I know, what do I know after 41 years of practice of not contributing to dispiritedness while at the same time engaging oneself fully in what's going on in the world. And I think it's really hard. I uh, thought a long time about whether or not I wanted to watch the debate last night because I have been having a moratorium on cable news. And then I decided I, was gonna, I would watch because I, would, I was going to watch it as a homework for being here today. I was going to watch myself about how I felt while watching. But we'll talk about that later, maybe. Maybe we talk about um, meditating right now. This is a good place to start. I read something just this morning in terms of meditation instructions. It has to do with why should we meditate if if you really learn that uh, if if you really habituate the mind to a uh, non-reactive, non-combative um, response in every situation, which is I think what really practice is about. Respond, but respond, don't react. Respond with kindness. Respond with wisdom, rather than react with aversion. I was I was reading a uh, um, a piece by Mingyur Rinpoche in the latest edition of Lion's Roar magazine. Mingyur Rinpoche is one of four brothers who are uh, meditation teachers. Their father was a very venerable Tibetan Buddhist meditation teacher, and he said, "When I was growing up, and my father was a meditation teacher, and my brothers were all learning that, and." I was the youngest, and I had, and I didn't feel up to the erudition or the ability of my father, certainly, or my brothers. And then, on top of it, he said I started to have panic attacks. So uh, I've heard him teach this as well, but it's in this month's uh, Lion's Roar. He said I started to have panic attacks, and I thought, Ah, oh, how can I be? How can I meditate? How can I be a meditation teacher if I'm having panic attacks? And he said, I tried every single thing to do with the panic attacks. And I tried this, and surely meditation would cure it, but made it worse, because he said I was meditating with a, really, with a determination that I should get over the panic attacks. That was what the meditation was for. And he said, finally, what I realized through meditation is that meditation allowed my mind to say, you know what? Panic is arising. That's it. I'm having a moment of panic going through me. 
and a moment of this and a moment of that instead of not making it into a problem. He said, as soon as I started not making my panic into a problem or something that was the matter with me, it's just something that's true about me, panicky feelings arise from time to time. He said, then they stopped. And certainly got a lot much less. I didn't finish the article, so <laughs> they're never there. But I thought that was the important thing. The important thing that I hope I just conveyed to you is that the insight is don't make things problematic. Don't make it worse. They're actually, the people who will hear, who was here when Tony Bernhard and... Um, uh, hmm? Cliff Saren, my friend Cliff Saren, we're here having a discussion, and one of them is a mindfulness researcher, and the other one is a mindfulness teacher. They were talking about the four noble truths, and the first noble truth is life is, comes with pain and difficulty, and the second one is we complicate it by making, uh, by uh, protesting against the pain and difficulty in one way or another, and we complicate it, we make it worse. And the third noble truth is we don't, we don't have to, we could not. And the fourth is if you want to have a mind that doesn't complicate it into suffering, you could practice these various things that include wise concentration and wise mindfulness. And then we discussed back and forth and one or the other of them said, I think the main thing we could, we could con- con- conflate or we could... Uh, what do you call it, uh, reduce all of those fourth truths into one truth, and the truth would be don't make it worse. Just don't make it worse. Life comes with pain and difficulty, don't make it worse. I could think also life comes with pain and difficulty, only be kind. That would be another antecedent to that. It does. There's a, a quote that I've been carrying around for some weeks. And I, and I was determined to mention it today because I remembered it in the back of my mind and I remembered that it was probably Longfellow and it said something about a uh, secret history of sorrow. And with the, it's a phenomenal, you go on the internet and you Google Longfellow history of sorrow and what comes up is Longfellow said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow enough to dismiss all hostility. Isn't that good? Don't you like that? I mean, the Buddha said the same thing, but somehow, you know, the Buddha was not. The Buddha was right, and so was Longfellow, and so was Shakespeare in a bunch of places. And so was every other religious tradition who said fighting with people makes it worse. Or fighting with your life makes it worse. Don't make your life your enemy. So when I read Mingyur this morning, he said, I finally realized I had a purpose in my meditation. I was going to become more calm. The calm was going to erase the panics. But he says, as long as you have a purpose with them, other than making the mind more malleable. It's problematic. If you have a goal, my mind has to change to be this kind of a mind. That's a great word, malleable, isn't it? I remember it was one of the words that I first heard uh, when I started to practice. 
My teachers were talking about malleability of a mind. I'll tell you more about that after we sit. But let's really sit a little bit. Let's sit um, maybe 20, 25 minutes. But here's the instruction. This is a one-word instruction. And I read it from um, uh, a teacher who's a monk in just outside of St. Louis. Let me think if I can remember his name. Vimala Ramsa is his name. I, he's not very well known. And he's written one book, and I read it a little while ago. He's an American-born convert to Buddhism. And he said, this is what I say to people. Don't make, medit- meditate in a way that doesn't make anything into a problem. Relax. And he says, sit, relax. Let your body present itself to you. Let your mind present itself to you. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly how he says it, so, or how I remember him as saying it. He says, I say to people, sit in a comfortable way, relax. Relax, keep your spine straight, he says, so that you can be relaxed and alert. Doesn't say anything about close your eyes, but you can if you want. And relax and feel your body. Feel your breath. You don't have to do anything about the breath. It just comes and goes. More, more the gist of his teaching is don't make it a problem. Don't insist that your breath be a certain way. It's short or it's long or it changes. Or, unless you have some pulmonary respiratory disease, your breath should easily come and go. If you do have some compromise of your lungs then find the rest of your body, the place to pay attention. The pressure of the chair against your back or your hands holding each other or your feet on the floor or your bottom on the seat or the temperature of the room on your face or your hands. He says, you can let your body just rest in the sensations of your body. But it's likely that thoughts keep arising and passing away, just in the same way that breath arises and passes away. 
thoughts about your current experience, this is pleasant, or this is not so pleasant, or this is interesting, or it's boring, or it's this, or it's that. Thoughts about what just happened earlier this morning before you came, or thoughts about what you're going to do this afternoon. He says, don't make anything a problem. Thoughts arise. Don't elaborate them. Don't necessarily, don't look for one of them to hold on to and elaborate. Let them come like clouds into the mind and go out. To see them. Don't engage them. And the word that he uses over and over is relax. If a thought comes and startles you, you feel it in your whole body, so relax. It'll go away. So when you relax, then you just exist in the awareness moment to moment. And that in itself is healing to the mind, takes some of the tension out of it, makes it more malleable, more able to say, okay, this is arising, but it's nothing, let it go. It's not important. It's a kind of generosity of spirit. Give away that thought, you don't need it. So we'll just sit that way. Mother, maybe you fall asleep a little bit, and then you wake up, you say, whoa, it's sleeping. That's okay, you wake up. Nothing is a problem.
it's our habit in this group to uh, save some time at the end of our sitting quietly for people to mention into the just the space of the community things that are on their mind uh, people who are near to them who are either in some special place of celebration in their life and people who uh, are in some special place of concern in their life people in the world in special places of concern that's on our minds so who's on your mind this morning who are you thinking about invitation to everybody to come to the box show at Gallery Route 1 where there are memorial boxes and recycle boxes and something for everybody of every age and it's happening this weekend. Everybody who's been touched either directly or indirectly by the violence in Gilroy this week.
residents and the staff at Friends House, particularly in skilled nursing, there's such a feeling of love and care and community. Uh, I just love to be there, and I feel that my mother is very lucky to have that as her home. May all the people whose names we mentioned and all the people we thought of but didn't say out loud and all of us and everyone we know, may we all be sustained by people who care about us and hold us up when we need holding up and applaud when we need applauding and constitute the emotional fiber, emotional backbone of our lives. May all people take care of each other. I am really glad that this class has been going on for 25, 20-something years because one of the things that seems so clear to me in addition to the fact that it's nice to sit quietly uh, it's good for the mind it's like a, a fog ball or a snowball that the mind clears uh, by the way, do you, does everybody know that the word mindfulness is the current English accepted translation for the Pali word vipassana, which this kind of meditation used to be called way back in the old times, um, and that the real meaning of the word vipassana means seeing clearly. Every once in a while we ought to say that because it's not it's 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 a better um, it's a better translation actually than mindfulness. People say to me, mindful of what? You, know, <laughs> you can't say mindful of clarity. That's kind of worry. You know, what does that mean? But uh, it's also, it's convenient to say mindfulness. But if, what if somebody said, I uh, understand you uh, practice, uh, you have a spiritual practice, what is it? 
And he said, I practice seeing clearly. And I said, well, you know. <laughs> uh, but really, but really, really seeing. And I think in my own, I, I know in my own experience and over these years, what happens is I see the same thing over and over and then I really begin to get it. I remember so many times in the course of these last many years where I'd say, ah, oh, now I get it what they were talking about. Now I get it. Now I really get it. Now I'm first getting it. Now I get it. Now I think I really get it. I don't know. Um, I was thinking about um, I was thinking about four or five different things. Maybe if I talk about it, and I was thinking, how can I put these all together so that it's a coherent presentation? But maybe they're all the same coherent. Uh, because I really want to talk about, uh, we'll start from that uh, Wordsworth quote. If we could, Longfellow, Henry Woodsworth Longfellow, if we could see the secret history of our enemies. We should find in each man's life enough sorrow to disarm all hostility. I really like that. You know, did, did you ever have that happen to you in your life? You hear about somebody that something terrible happened to, or maybe even not extremely terrible, but that you see somebody in a human plane way. Well, here's an example. It just came in my mind. It's a, it's in a way, it's a silly example. But um, in the early 19... In 1905, 1995, 1995, I think it was, I was part of a, a group of 27 Western, which meant English-speaking Dharma teachers, who met with the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. So that was a very big deal to have, for me to have been invited. felt very honored. And it's a very long trip to go to Dharamsala. And I remember going with three other women teachers. You have to fly all the way to Frankfurt, and then you have to a long, long flight, and then get on another long, long flight to Delhi. And then we grouped with uh, teachers who had come from all over Europe and other places. And we got on the night train that very night and went on an overnight night train up to Dharamsala, which is another whole story, to go on an overnight uh, economy class Indian train with three, we, we, not double-decker, but triple-decker on both sides of a, of a cabin, but a cabin without a door. You know, on a European train, you walk into a cabin, and it has two beds, usually. But these were three and no door, and in the passageway, there were another three stacked up in the perpendicular to us. So a lot of people in a very small space. So it's a, and it's a, it's a journey with a lot of stopping and uncoupling of cars and banging and smashing and continuing to look out the window in the dark. Where am I? In the middle of India. I don't know whether the train has just crashed or they're just adding. <laughs> That you think that, you know, if you have an imaginative mind that worries about anything. Plane just crashed, or whether they're just adding some cars or uncoupling some cars. 
and you get all the way up to Patankot, and then you get into a taxi, and you ride four hours to Dharamsala on the edge of precipices. And I remember in that ride, uh, uh, my friend Jack Hornfield was sitting in the back seat, and I was somehow sitting in the seat with the, in the front with the driver. It's hair raising. And in the middle of the in the middle of the ride, he leans forward and he says, uh, uh, "Are you praying, Sylvia?" I said, "Yeah." <laughs> As a matter of fact, I am. He said, "Are they Hebrew prayers or are they Buddhist prayers?" I said, "Both." He said, "Good." <laughs> so we continue on. We make it obviously. And we get to where we are, and the next night, or that night soon, we are reconnoitering with all the other teachers who've come from everywhere so that we can get to know each other. I knew most of the people and plan how we were going to have our four days of meeting with His Holiness. And my friend Jack was organizing this get to know, you know, let's see who's here meeting. And I'm sitting in the big, in the living room of this guest house, waiting for everybody to come in. Because apart from the people I traveled with, I didn't know all the 27 people who were there. And someone come in, and someone come in, and I think to myself, oh good, that one's coming. Oh, oh good, that one coming, I'm thinking. And then someone comes in, I say, oh phooey. Uh, not out loud, of course. You know, but saying, "Oh, fooey," you know, because of those twenty-seven people, truth to tell, I didn't have the same feeling for everybody. I even—I don't remember who the three. Well, if I if I pushed, I could really remember who the three was. I definitely don't remember what slight they had, what infraction had caused them to be on my fooey list, but. Apparently, each of them had in some way done something to cause me to put them on the list of undesirables. <laughs> so here we are, we sit down and fooey, fooey, fooey. And, uh, and, but there we are, finally there, and uh, Jack said, well, the first thing we have to go around the room and introduce each other, ourselves to each other. And uh, so I'd like to go around, and I imagined he was going to say, we'll go around and say our name, and where we teach, and what our specialty is, and what we like to teach, etc. This is not what he said. He said, we'll go around, and each person will say their name, and then they'll say, what is the largest spiritual challenge you have in your teaching life and in your personal life right now? And they, ah! You know? If he had said, we'll all stand up and take off our clothes, it would have been less challenging than then, you know, I mean, that's a very personal, intimate question. And he said, so we don't have to worry about who goes next. I'll start. We'll just go around the circle. Ready, set, go. Okay. So he says whatever it is that he says. I don't remember what. And then it goes around the circle, and it's going to come around to me over here. And I have this distinct feeling of, ah, because I had whatever I had that I needed to say. But then I also realized I couldn't make up something else. I have to say what's true for me. And I also realized I'm, you know, I'm in Dharamsala, but it's not easy to get there. <laughs> I can't just automatically teleport myself back home. I'm there, so we're on. I can't even make up what, you know, spend time rehearsing because I have to hear what everybody else. So it starts going around the room and people start to say 
My name is Da-da-da, and my most difficult challenge in my personal life and in my teaching life is X and Y. Variations of X and Y, X and Y, X and Y. And everybody was amazingly candid. They just said, nobody said, I have no challenges, it's all fine. Everybody had challenges and everybody talked about them. And as they were talking, I was, I, I was moved and I was touched by everybody's story. Uh, and they were so candid, all of these people. My heart went out to them. And as I was going around the circle, I realized all of a sudden that I had accidentally felt tremendous compassion and friendliness for two of my fooey people, you know, that I accidentally liked them, you know, that... And, but that's the story that if someone leads with, these are the difficulties in my life, this is what's hard for me, and they tell the truth, you feel, ah, and you're going to have to tell the same truth. If we actually knew the secret history of all of our enemies, all we would find in each person's life sorrow enough to disarm all hostility. People tell the truth, this is my life, because everybody's life has other things in it. Of course, they're all in enough health to be in Dharamsala. They have good things about them. They're healthy, they came to Dharamsala, they're teaching, they have all kinds of good things, but everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got challenges. And to be able to empathize them on the level of they have challenges just as I do, and forgive them for whatever it was. That's a good story, isn't it? It's a, and I remember it always, and it's, what, it's 25 years practically since then. What did you say? Hmm? <laughs> I don't know what I said verbatim, but I said I, some variation, oh, some variation of I'm in a different, I'm in a, interesting situation. I either have just written or am writing or am becoming well-known as a person who is uh, really connected to her Judaism and involved as a Jew and, uh, and also teaching the Dharma of the Buddha. And uh, I don't remember how I exactly said it, but at the time, that was a... Um, That was a, a, what's the word I'm going to say? Um, nobody had said that before. Um, I actually did. I remember, it may not have been in that circle, but I, it was another circle, either just bef- probably just before that or certainly just after that, where I was in another big circle of Buddhist teachers and talking about how we are and how we felt about our teaching went around the room and uh, uh, the person before me, all people said where they were from, these are just, it was some local gathering of Buddhist teachers, maybe 30 or 40 people in the room, went around, everybody, and the person right before me uh, was Alan Sanaki. Alan Sanaki is now retired as the founding chair of the, um, oh, what's the name of it? Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Berkeley. And he said, you know, that's what I am. I'm the chair of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Brooklyn. And I feel so lucky about being that, he said. And I'm thinking to myself, how did I, here I am, how did a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn become the founder? 
I used to be a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn, and now I'm the founder of the Berkeley uh, uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And I went right after him. And I said, well, I also have a history somewhat like, uh, like Alan. I used to be a nice Jewish girl from Brooklyn, and I still am. <laughs> and uh, those are the beginnings of my being able to say to people, this is what's true to me. On one occasion, a, um, a, a journalist wrote to me, uh, called me, and said the, some, said the question that everybody was asking me those days, which is, how can you be at the same time a Jew and a Buddhist? And so I said something like, many Westerners, Jews as well as non-Jews, have found that studying the philosophy of the Buddha and the practices that the Buddha taught for engaging that philosophy have been very enlightening to them in their lives, um, uh, in their lives and something have been very useful and enlightening to them in their lives. Something like that. But when I finished, the person who was interviewing me said, uh, very good. <laughs> and I felt somewhat um, dismayed because it was written on a card in front of me. I had answered it so many times that I had it written out in a very articulate way Many Westerners, Jews as well as not Jews, blah de blah de blah de blah about the philosophy and the techniques of the Buddha, have found that their lives and in all aspects were enhanced by studying the philosophy and the practices of mindfulness as taught by the Buddha, something like that. And I'd said it a million times. Not a million, but a lot. And he said, very good. And I thought, oh, that's not so nice. I should at least make it up on the spot, you know, not, not read it. But, you know, that was 20 years ago. Nobody says anything anymore. People say to me uh, in September, if I were here, people would say Happy New Year when it's just before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, uh, in my synagogue in San Rafael, I teach mindfulness. They're very happy with me there. Uh, and uh, they don't worry about the fact that it was the Buddha from whom I learned. We are very lucky we live in a century where we're not post-parochial, but we're a little bit able to lift ourselves up from saying, uh, this does not make you apart from other people. It does not even make you only one kind of people. <laughs> you know, nobody's asked me that question. I've told that question, the story of Dharamsala. So many times, and nobody ever said, "What did you say?" <laughs> so now it's a, it's for all for all for all perpetuity. But it let it let's it reminds me to say that and not but. One of the things people have changed their mind. People got it. I could be this and a that, and it's not being a this and being a, th- a that. It's finding yourselves in an affinity group that suits you. Because it does, and you're used to it, and you like to have a group where you get together and sing and chant and say, let's be kind to each other, which we do here and I do there. I think in every church group, uh, I feel really comfortable going wherever people worship. Uh, I feel very much like, um, what was his name? Alan, Alan, ah, do it, do it, Sylvia. 
uh, he was the retiring uh, as the head of Grace Cathedral. He was the de- dean of Grace Cathedral. Alan Jones. Alan Jones was the dean of Grace Cathedral. Thank you very much. And in his book about his own spiritual life and his own commitment to being the dean of an Episcopal large, major Episcopal church, he said, I, I don't believe the story, but I am a believer, which I think is one of the best lines about being part of a religious tradition. I don't believe the story, the, the, the canon, but I, I don't believe the metaphysics. I don't believe the world was created in seven days. There are things that I, I don't believe donkeys talk or snakes either and other things that are... But I, I do believe that it's possible to love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's a good way to say it. And I do believe in compassion and kindness and blessings. That's one of the best stories. I want to tell you about these books. One of the best stories... Um, Okay, 1992, there was a uh, uh, a conference in Tucson, Arizona, uh, with the Dalai Lama teaching for a whole week on the teachings of Shanti Deva's Chapter Six of Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And what he did from the whole week, this is one of the really great experiences of my life. It was a whole week and the whole Sheraton Hotel in Tucson, Arizona was filled with people just who were there, 2,000 people there to hear the Dalai Lama teach. And he would teach every day, uh, all morning and all afternoon. And at night, other um, more, less celebrated personalities uh, in different uh, different. Uh, lineages of Buddhism in Theravada and in Zen and in uh, other lineages would give nighttime discourses or teach. But uh, all of us were there and day after day going to, into the teachings and uh, His Holiness would read each of the chapter, each of the verses in chapter 6. He would read the verse in Pali then he would, uh, uh, or in Tibetan, I guess, in Sanskrit, he'd read it in Sanskrit, and then he would translate it, and then he would discourse on it and uh, do an exegesis of the text. And we hung on every word, and he was, it was wonderful. And on Friday at noon, when we were about to break for lunch and come back that afternoon, he said, okay, now we're finished with the chapter that morning, oh, you see, if you tell one story, you have to tell the rest of it. At the end of the morning, he had finished that particular chapter, chapter six. If you, if, you can probably buy it in there, Shanti Deva's Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. What it says in chapter six, which is a chapter on patience, is no matter what happens, anger must not come out of you. No matter what happens, do something else with the anger. And in case somebody... I. I Anyway, one or another example, one after another. If somebody defames your good name and anger arises in you, you should think to yourself thus, is that person right? 
And if they're right, you should be grateful that they pointed out to you something that you didn't do well and just fix it up. And what if they're not right? They say something not good about you and uh, it's not true. So if it's not true, what's the problem? So that's it. And we think, but, 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 everybody heard this other story. But, 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 so they heard it. What's the problem? Anyway, he did this day after day and he finishes just before noon on Friday. And uh, he gets to the last sentence, no matter what, I don't remember exactly how it is, but no matter what, anger should not come out of you. And all of a sudden he falls over, appears to fall over, with his head in his hands, and he's shaking. And everybody is, what's the matter with his holiness? You know, maybe maybe it looked like he had suddenly a terrible headache, maybe he had a stroke, maybe something happened. And is he crying? Why is he like that? Then he picks himself up. I think he wiped his eyes a little bit. And it was clear that he was crying because he was so touched by the text. And it isn't as if he's never read it before. He's probably read it, who knows, he's probably done that same exegesis a hundred times before. But that he's so moved by it that he's crying about it. And we were all sort of, ah... And then he said, this afternoon, we're going to do the, uh, it's going to be a, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, Inauguration, no. I'm going to take, the initiation into bodhisattva vows. So if you want to take the bodhisattva vows this afternoon, come back this afternoon, two o'clock. Come back in. Oh, so somebody immediately stands up in the back, puts their hand up. They say, uh, you know, I'm an ardent and devout Catholic. Should I be, can I take initiation vows, bodhisattva initiation vows, with, um, and, and still be within, I'm a devout Catholic? So His Holiness thinks, and he says, you know, I think he can. I think he can. Then we break for lunch, come back at uh, two o'clock, and... Uh, everybody's in their place. You have to, everybody be in their place, doors locked, in your very seat with your name tag. And then he comes in and he does his three prostrations and gets up in his seat. And you figure he's going to just start in to do the initiation. And he says, where is the person back there who asked that question about whether it was okay to do this? And the person stands up in the back he said, I've been reflecting on that. It was such a great moment. You know, he t- he's got 2,000 students. He's had a short lunchtime, and he's re- he honestly feel he was reflecting on that. How much that person have felt good? I felt good. They really didn't just say an old answer. It was reflecting. I've been reflecting on your question, uh, and I think it really is okay. He said, because after all, Compassion is compassion, and a blessing is a blessing. And I just that just made such a big impression on me. Compassion is compassion, and a blessing is a blessing. And what does it matter what lineage and what language you're going to say, I feel for you, may you be well, may you be happy, may you thrive. What? I also said another time my religion is kindness. 
Yeah, that's another thing that he is famous for saying. That someone's saying, uh, can you tell me about your religion? What's your religion? And he said, my religion is kindness. And I remember thinking about that a lot. And I thought, in some ways, everybody's religion is kindness. If you read it that way. That love your neighbor as yourself is another form of saying kindness. Love one another as I have loved you is a teaching of Jesus. You know, it's all kindness. Just give everybody the blessing of your heart is I think what that means. And not only, I think this is the part that in this last year I've become so clear about. It's not only everybody else's nice life would be nicer. My life is better every time I take somebody off my fooey list and put them in the okay list. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's funny. It's from 1993, and it, it, it stayed in my mind. It'll probably stay forever in my mind. I don't even remember how I got there, but I was going to talk about changing your mind. I, I, or I, I started with the vipassana and seeing clearly and more clearly, and say, really, now I really see clearly. I was going to talk about the ability to change your mind a little bit. I don't know how long we get, we have, how far we can go with this, but otherwise, I'll come back in January. Because I thought to myself, I thought to myself this morning, this is one of the things I, I have been thinking about and want to think about some more. Um, there's a line in the Metta Sutta that says, um, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. The recollection, may all beings be at ease, which is the ultimate blessing. May all beings be at ease. They're just, may we all relax. I think it's the ultimate good thing that you can say. That's also an ultimate expression of what's true. Everybody is living in a state of, of um, existential dis-ease. That when, uh, when, when the Buddha had his awakening, uh, to, uh, oh wow, now I have to think about the human condition. It was that all the time we're thinking, how am I going to stay comfortable? How can I be safe? How can I take care of my needs? How can I make... We live in, in a state of... Um, what, what was the name of the man who wrote... Um, Robert, he wrote, uh, Everything I Needed to Learn, I Learned in the Kindergarten. Fulgram, Fulgram, that's it. And he wrote, a, he wrote a second book after everything I needed to know I learned in the kindergarten. second book was called Uh-Oh. That is actually the name of the book. And it talks about, it's very good, I just recently reread it. It's that the whole life is one uh-oh, you know? Uh-oh, this isn't, the, you know, when, when your adult child calls you and says, oh, am I, we got a few minutes to talk, you think, uh-oh. You know, there's a, don't you? That you know, your adult child does not call you to say, "I have a few minutes to talk," unless they have some sort of a thing that they feel they want to know or talk to you about. Uh oh. And we're always, we are always. Uh, you can even think of this as a bad thing. We're always 
Uh, no matter how much you eat, you get hungry again. People sometimes say, oh, I'm not going to eat for a week. And the next day, they're hungry again. But that's actually a good thing. It's a good thing. We're not bears. We don't hibernate. It's actually good that we keep on getting hungry again and hungry again and full and hungry. So the thing of insatiable appetite, we also want to live more. I love that story. I don't know. It, uh, the, the, I'm thinking about um, Jean being 101. And I, I think I mentioned to you, a friend of mine who's a rabbi had visited a parishioner recently whom, about whom she had heard that this particular woman, now 106 years old, uh, had recently engaged hospice because she was, she was obviously she's 106, she's somewhat frail, and she felt that the end was near and maybe anticipating it, she engaged hospice. So my friend went to visit her at home and uh, found her in her living room, all dressed and was, you know, as if she could go out, looking quite perky. And she said, uh, uh, but you know, how are you? Said, I came to visit you because I heard, I heard uh, you had felt that it was time to call hospice. She said, well, I did. But then I heard that there's a climate march on September 20th. <laughs> And I want to be there. So I changed my mind. So I, th- I thought to myself, you know what? I think that's great. I think, you know, I have to go to one more climate march. It, because it's so... Did you any of you see the, uh, the video that went around that uh, people made of the march on... The, the, the first women's march the day after the last inauguration? There's a, some people made videos of it. In four or five different cities, did you? See, who saw it? It's great, right? So one of the cities is Santa Rosa, and there are all these four or five videos that are put together into one composite video. And in Santa Rosa, there's a group of people getting ready to go out to the women's march, and one of them, they're helping her from where to her chair into her wheelchair, and then she says, "Okay, now." Uh, uh, give me my glasses. Wait, first I have to put in my hearing aids. I'm putting in my hearing aids. Now I'm putting in my glasses. Now I'm putting on my hat, my sun hat. I don't remember it was something else. So, okay, now let's go. And the next scene, you see her uh, being helped to transfer from the wheelchair into a car that's going to take her to wherever this march is. And the interviewer is interviewing her about marching on behalf of a cause and she said well yes I've been marching since and she gave some date probably the 1960s I've been marching since then I never missed the opportunity she said but that's still not finished it's still not fixed so I have to march today as well so it's the same I I called off hospice because I have to go to that climate march on the 20th of September that, that taking care of other people sustains your own life, is what I want to say. That the idea that some act of mine could be of use to somebody else. What if 10 women or men over the age of 100 showed up at the next march with signs, I'm 103, I'm 108, I'm still marching, because this matters. That would be a great thing. I bet we could organize it. <laughs> I have a t-shirt called Grandmothers 
really, somebody gave it to me that I wear when I march. Grandmothers in favor of a better world or something. So I want to talk about, I want to talk about what keeps the mind engaged and what enables it really to feel for other people. Do other people, we, I always think, you know what, you remember last week I was saying, one of the things I learned is that some things that I've been saying over and over again, I don't believe anymore. Like, I don't know if I said this one last week. Maybe I did, I don't think so. Uh, I used to enjoy saying it, but I'm not going to say it anymore. I'm going to say it to you now, but I'm not going to say it anymore. Um, people go on retreat, or they they go on retreat, and they have a time to reflect and a time to sit with their own mind for some period of time. And then it's coming near the end of the retreat, and they say, uh, you know, I feel so, my heart is so opened, and I feel really... I really feel I love everybody here and in my mind I've made peace with the people that I was holding at a distance in my mind. I realized they couldn't be other. And they say, you know what, I feel that I'm very open and I'm afraid to go in the world because I'm afraid to go out and listen to the news or read the newspaper because I'm afraid I've become too vulnerable. And I have been saying... Uh, you know what, I don't think there's any such thing as true vulnerable. I'm waiting for the whole world to be too vulnerable and then maybe we'll stop killing each other. Maybe everybody will say, "What a you know, it's a mistake, let's stop. And then I was thinking about it from something from we were talking about last week and I actually think there is such a thing as too vulnerable. I was thinking about it in terms of oh, In terms of the conversation uh, about there are some difficulties in life that so overwhelm us that we haven't got, we are too dispirited to go to the climate march and that's okay. Or too dispirited to stay up with the news. Or too dispirited to yet volunteer for one more project. And I wanted to make room for that, that there's, that there, that, um, I told the story about uh, talking to Jack about taking ill unexpectedly with an eye virus a few days after 9/11, uh, and I and not being had, having to cancel some teaching engagement in New York because you can't fly when you're contagious. And I said I would have liked to go because New York is in such a shaken up place, and it's good for people who have a wise, soothing attitude and can tolerate stress uh, to be there. And so I wanted to go. And he said, well, yeah, too bad you're not one of those people. <laughs> and I, 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 I thought about it. And, I, you know, at the moment, I thought to myself, that's not nice. I, you know, he's like one of my best friends and say a thing like that about me, that I'm not one of those people who would be a beacon of light in a time of difficulty. But the thing is, I am, I certainly have a kind heart, and I do overwhelm easily. I'm better off somewhere in the, on the support team. I'm not in the first, not in, in the immediate aftermath. 
I need to get used to things. Uh, different people have different different um, energies. I spoke with a woman this week who is now retired as an emergency room physician. She said, I didn't realize how much, even when you're not working, you tense. It's a job that is a high tense job. You have to think fast and make a decision fast. Someone wrote a study once on the extraordinary level of early cardiovascular disease in retiring um, uh, what do you call the people who uh, um, air controllers air safety controllers at O'Hare airport which is the busiest, busiest airport in the world and they did a research and they have a much higher cardiovascular disease alcoholism everything really reflecting it's a very hard choice of a profession I really think, you know, maybe I fly into Chicago the next time, I'll think good thoughts about the people who elect to do that. They have a lot of people's safety that they're taking care of. So this is what I began to think about. I began to think about changing your mind about things. I don't want to say that again. There's no such thing as too vulnerable. Because some people are, and I might be one of them. And it's, it's you know, what's a better answer to I'm afraid to go in the world because I'm, I feel too vulnerable? Don't go immediately into the whole world. Don't buy the Sunday New York Times on your way out of Spirit Rock. That's too much to digest right then. Wait a while. Don't turn on uh, cable news for a little while. Take a little vacation. (laughs) Maybe a long vacation. But think about it. Also everything that I'm sure of. And then this morning, just as I was leaving... I, I wrote, make a note for me. I had six things that I was going to really talk about. So, okay, not that I'm going to talk about this. Now, really talk about this, really talk about this. And I went out and I thought, you know, somebody said to me, oh, you'll be on, on a sabbatical. Are you planning to write another book? I don't think so. I, I think about it sometimes. But if I wrote another book, I have a, a number of very good book titles in my mind. <laughs> I am known for good book titles. And here's the title that I'd like to do. And the title I'd like to use is Recalculating. Recalculating is what my GPS says to me when I don't go someplace the way they tell me to go. Because I'm there and I see that the street is all torn up and it's barred off and I can't possibly continue. And I know how to come around and be where they mean me to be. And I start to go that way. And in a very nice tone of voice, they say, recalculating. And then I I do the same thing again. They say, recalculating again. And then they annoyingly continue on until they're convinced that you have hooked up with some place that they can direct you. Anyway, recalculating. I'm keeping thinking about... The line in the Metta Sutta, whether standing or walking, seating or seated or lying down, one should um, sustain this recollection, which is may all beings be at ease. Then it says, by not uh, clinging to fixed views, 
And I was thinking about that's it. For so many long time, I had that fixed view. That was true. It was a nice way to say it, and I said it. It's not true, and it wasn't a nice way to say it. It was a little smug. So I don't like that. So now I have a view about that. But changing your mind for years, Tricycle Magazine used to sponsor a conference in New York City in um, in Central Park every summer called Change Your Mind Day. There's a new book by Michael Pollan called Change Your Mind or I Changed My Mind. Or, huh? How to Change Your Mind. Who read Michael Pollan's book? What do you think? Great. What was great? <laughs> I thought so as well. Uh, I particularly was touched by the fact that Michael Pollan, I, how old do you think he is? 55, somewhere in the 50s? I don't know. 60s, somewhere. But not 30s. Huh? He's very square for that amount. He's, he's, cut, he's had the whole life, and he was in the 60s when the 60s were the 60s, and he didn't do any of that. We mostly didn't do anything like that. No, we didn't. That's not true. We did a little of everything, but not a lot. Uh, and, but we were, we, were, we were too old to be hip. You can't be too hip if you have already four children at home. You can't be going around experimenting so much with drugs. It's complicated. <laughs> but what, what's very touching about him is that as part of his research as a plant researcher and a, a writer about how different kinds of things that you ingest change your life, he tries various kind of, very various kinds of foodstuffs that are like mushrooms, etc., and herbs that are hallucinogens, mind alterants. And he's very, very, very careful about finding, uh, uh, you know, interviewing people who are going to be his guides, which is lovely. In the, back in the days. Uh, people did any old thing, and I see people <laughs> smiling. <laughs> so people did a lot of any old thing because someone said, "Here, this is good." But uh, you know, he did a lot of research, so it's a little quaint, uh, and it's it's actually exciting that you could change your mind. But I had three instances of thinking about changing mind this week. Friend of mine, this is all just to say how I got up to this. Friend of mine said. Um, she just read this book called Martin Buber by Paul Mendes Flor. She said it's great. And I only knew a little bit about Buber, having only well, a passing knowledge that what Buber talked about in terms of what is the important spiritual moment in people's lives is not so much relating to God, but relating that, uh, that presence is religion that the feeling of presence, you, you, you're with a lot of people all the time, but there's sometimes when you're with a person and you say something to them or they say something to you, where it really connects and you really feel that what you're saying or what they're saying, that you're really there. And he said, that is a, that's a religious moment when two people are really the same person in that moment. And when you're really connected to somebody, then your whole life really 
it, your worries aren't there, your stuff isn't there, because in fact love is there. And he could have said presence is love. Anyway, I started to read it right away. And it, it's not an easy read, but what I, the really, a reason I wanted to mention it to you is about if we could feel, when we feel what another person is feeling, all the others, or we think we do, we feel connected to them, we care a lot about them and we take care of them. And we were talking always, not just last week, about what impels some people to take care of other people and some people not. Why for some people is it all right to have children in cages at the border? To separate children from their parents who are crying. What? How, does, how can that get to be all right? How can people do some of the things that they do? I think maybe they can't. Maybe in terms of, uh, when if, if we think about the numbers of um, veterans of recent deployment um, in the last 20 years uh, in the military, the suicide rate every, every day, the mental health consequences, the, the, the terrible costs of obligating people to be in a position of hurting other people. The Buddha would have said that, well, at least the Dalai Lama says, and I'm sure that in another kind of a language, another kind of a saying, the Buddha would say, um, uh, people who are happy and people who are at ease don't hurt other people. People who are happy don't hurt other people. And if they're obligated to do it because they get caught up in a team spirit, for you're a young person and you get drilled in the army and those are the enemy. It's like being a young person caught up in a, in a gang where suddenly the gang think takes over you and you do some terrible things. So I'm really thinking a lot about... Uh, I, was the, I was particularly taken by this book because at several places in the book he says, you know, I changed my mind. Oh, the, the, the writer, Paul Mendesflor, says about Buber, he suddenly got it that he was wrong on that point. And he was so vocal in all his teaching. He was lecturing here and there and other places. And he said, I was, I've realized I was wrong. So I said, you know what? I'm changing my mind about that. That isn't what I really want to say. And then sometime later he said, you know what? I'm changing again on that because I wasn't taking this into consideration. What I liked so much is his ability as a, such a public person to back off and say, I thought it over. And really what I mean to think, which is a bigger interpretation, it made me think about uh, Christopher Hitchens. Do you remember Christopher Hitchens? He died at some point, maybe in the last 20 years. And there's a book called Hitch 22. It's like Catch 22, but Hitch 22. I loved it because he's such a good writer. And I discovered while reading it that he, uh, he was a passionate socialist when he was at school in England as a young man. And he started the Socialist Society at Oxford or Cambridge or wherever he was. Passionate socialist and very much had politics like the politics that I have currently until sometime around the time of Ronald Reagan and neoconservatism, and he changed his mind. 
And from one pirate, one chapter to the next, he, he changes his mind. And then he goes on from that point. And I went back and I read the chapter and the chapter before it, or like a few times, like maybe it's hidden in the chapter how exactly he changed his mind because the the political points of view that I have or the social points of view that I have are so entrenched. Could I suddenly have the other point of view? My friend, um, so it was Buber who said, I changed my mind, I was wrong about this. So this is in the, in the context of people change their mind. Um, Thomas Merton in the... Uh, in the Seven Story Mountain, in the twentieth re-issuing of it, in, in the Japanese translation or something, but twenty years after it was written, wrote, "I'm very embarrassed that I wrote uh, that I was so parochial in uh, the original edition, and that I was so dogmatic about you have to stay within the bounds of Roman Catholicism and don't think outside of it. And I was so parochial in what I said in the introduction to, I guess it was the introduction to the first edition of the Seven Story Mountain. So I'm, so, I'm so embarrassed about it because I changed my mind. And I really began to think about that element of changing your mind. And I think, well, I'm never going to change my mind about da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But what if I did? I just changed my mind about how helpful it was to say you can't be too vulnerable. Yeah, you can, I think. So I'm just that's just one of the things that I'm thinking about. So I'm thinking now for the next six months, not just about that. I'll think about other things. There are two other books that I brought with me, and I want to tell you about because this, if you can find this, it's just such a nice thing to have around. This is called uh, What's Your Story? True Experiences from Complete Strangers. Some people, the people who wrote this book, set up in Washington Park in the middle of New York City and gave people who were sitting in the park in the midday in a lunch hour uh, pieces of blank paper on one of those like clipboards that they give you at the doctor's office to lean on and write just to write about your life today, what's going on with you, what are you thinking about. So each each page is actually a reproduction of the original page that people submitted. So it's people's original writing. And, you know, look at... Um, I am a first-generation East Indian who grew up in California. I studied my ass off, but deferred Ivy League schools to go to West Point and to serve the country. I write this anonymously because I don't want credit or sympathy. I graduated number 18 out of 916 from West Point, went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and came back to an ungrateful Indian culture. I'm looked at as the outcast in that society because I'm not the lawyer, doctor, or engineer they wanted. I struggle to fit in any culture because my identity is a mix of American culture, Indian culture, and military discipline. I've led soldiers into combat, but I can't talk to a girl. I've been shot at and bombed, but can't stop jumping at loud noises. I walk around major cities in the U.S. wondering if what I've done with my life is worth it. 
Then I see children playing in parks, and I know it's all worth it. I wouldn't change anything. I would do it all over again without changing a single decision. It is worth it. This is from somebody else. Um, It's been a good work week. Not too hot, a little bit breezy. Almost 11 months sober. Now I've got a kid on the way. New apartment with a backyard in the fucking city, New York City. A backyard. It's amazing. It says actually the F word again. I said the other word because I, I accidentally, I didn't have time to not do it. <laughs> if I have time to not, if I see it coming, I don't have to do it. Been looking at strollers and they are a lot more expensive than I anticipated. But that's okay. If it costs every cent that I earn, this kid's going to have the world. If I can instill some wisdom before I go, it's this. Try and have compassion for the life you and all those around you live. These are not the Dalai Lama. These are regular people sitting in Washington Park. Here's a picture of random pages put up for a display. And I've had it, I don't even, someone sent it to me. Someone sent it to me. And I leave it around. When I was younger, I've always wanted a pet zebra. That was only a few years ago when I was seven. Now I'm 11. I asked my mom about getting a pet zebra and she said, no, you cannot get a pet zebra. Do you know how absurd that is? Maybe she wasn't actually yelling, but she wasn't like, dear, we cannot get a pet zebra. So I decided to write a song about her called Dream Crusher. Now I know that the idea. Now that I know that the idea of getting a pet zebra is absurd, but then I thought it was perfectly normal. I was a bit strange back then. When I was four, I was a devil child with three exclamation points. I bit my pre-K teacher so many times, seven years ago. But now I'm all right. I know that about that biting is bad. It's a nice book to have around. Whatever, whatever mood you're in, it's like people having a life. And I do not have a chance to read this to you. Maybe I will. We have five minutes. This is one of my very favorite things. This is a story that was written down by a woman who lives in Marin County, whose name is Meredith May. And uh, it's a story about two men... Uh, an Iraqi man and an Irani man who were both conscripted into the 10-year war that after taking untold, no, many, many lives on both sides, the border between Iraq and Iran did not move one inch. Nothing happened except a lot of people died. And the two men who were in the following situation meet and each independently were in the war, met, were separated, and met many years later by accident in Vancouver in 
something like a, a getting a driver's license in some public building. They met each other, they recognized each other, they became friends, they told their stories, and the stories were put together by Meredith May, who's a writer who put them together. And I read it over and over, every year somewhere, I think about bringing it here. The uh, Irani man is uh, 15 years old and he lies about his age to get to be a soldier. And uh, he forges a note from his father because his father was tyrannical and he wanted to get out from his home. And they make him a, um, a, a medic a medic aide, so he's got, he can make a tourniquet and he can do some first battlefield first aid. And this starts when there's been a huge, terrible battle with a great deal of carnage. Uh, and um, by nightfall, I was ordered to search the bunkers. I was to give middle, medical aid to any wounded Persians I found and um, and give a bullet to any Iraqis. I had never killed anyone, and I really, really didn't want to. My only weapon was a flashlight, but abandoned guns were strewn everywhere, so I picked up a rifle as I approached the first bunker on trembling legs. I felt my collar to make sure that the grenade was still there. I could There could be groups of Iraqis inside waiting for the right chance to make a run for it, they were, the most cert- they were most certainly armed and they would certainly blow my head off in a second if I walked in. I crouched at the entrance, turned off my flashlight and waited for courage. This was suicide, the same as work and walking in a minefield, but again, I had no choice. I took one step through the doorway and listened for breathing. It was still as a pond. Come out, I yelled, lowering my voice to sound like an adult. Nothing. My hands shook as I turned on my light. The beam cut across several bodies, sprawled on the dirt floor, collapsed in a pool of blood, was already starting to form a crust at the edges. These Iraqis had been dead for some time. And he goes along and he's looking at helmets, ammunition boxes all over. I shined my light, nothing moved. I, obviously, people with officers with all kinds of stripes on them. I poked them with a rifle but got no response, just all piled up. I turned to go and then I heard a sound that was a low moan. I whipped back around and the man at the bottom of the pile was looking at me through half-lidded eyes. Instinctively, the medic in me pulled the corpses off him and he gasped when the air rushed back into his lungs. I jumped back and hunched down, ready to spring on him if he tried to attack, but he just lay there, moaning and mumbling something. His tan desert fatigues were soaked red from his chest to his waist, and he had an open gash on his forehead and another on his arm. I hoped he would die on me right then, and that those moans he were making were his last. Then he turned his head and looked directly at me and said something. I didn't understand Arabic, but I think I caught one word of it. Muslim. It came out like muzim. I stood and I put my finger on the trigger, but my shaking hands made it impossible to fix on a point. Then he lifted his hand and weakly reached for his shirt pocket. This Arab was going to blow us both up. I dove to reach the grenade first, 
but my fingers touched paper instead in his pocket, and I pulled out a pocket-sized Koran. I slumped to the ground. Now I was the one gasping with relief. Every Irani, every Iraqi, every Irani I knew carried a Quran into battle for protection. And I guess all the Iraqis did too. I looked back at the wounded man to make sure he wasn't reaching for anything else. Muslim, Muslim, he moaned. There was something hidden in the book. I suspected money. After watching the other soldiers pillage so many dead bodies, I'd learned that the Quran everybody carried doubled as a wallet. I held it open in my palm and the pages flooded back fluttered back to reveal a photograph tucked inside. I saw a woman with olive skin and dramatic eyebrows holding an infant to her chest. The baby's face was in profile, but it was so young that its skin was still bright red. The woman's dark eyes cast a spell like she could look straight into my secrets. There was something about her gaze, a sadness that made me want to hold her hand and tell her everything was going to be okay. I knew I was holding his family in my hands. These were the people who loved him, who would die inside if I killed him. She was so beautiful, like the kind of wife I would want someday. And it would be wrong to ruin her life, and even more evil to take away a baby's father. This soldier had a life that wasn't here, that wasn't supposed to end with me shooting him in a bunker. Something had brought him to this war, and that was out of his control, Why else would he leave such a beautiful family behind? The Iraqi smiled weakly at me, and that's when I noticed that we were the same. We both had two eyes, a nose, and a mouth. Why was I supposed to hate him? He had never harmed me. I had managed to get this far in the war without killing anyone, and I wasn't going to start now. If I put a bullet in his temple to end his misery, then the guilt would haunt me forever. I could walk away. But letting him suffer was more inhumane than taking his life. Or I could be merciful. What comes after that is that he rescues him. He gets him to uh, uh, an Arani field hospital. And his life gets saved. Then he spends a long time, he loses track of him. He just deposits him. He goes to the hospital. He's for a long time... uh, held as a prisoner in Iran. When he finally gets to go home to Iraq, he finds that his wife and child have been killed in the war. Many years later, they meet in some office in Vancouver. They they recognize each other, and they become friends. This is like, somebody gave me this as as a gift. I didn't Someone had read it, I don't know, Meredith May. And every once in a while I feel like bringing that and reading it out loud. So I looked at him, he had two eyes and a nose and a mouth, just like me. Why would I want to kill him? It seems like it's so easy. You know, I, I... I don't have any clue about how the world is going to save itself. But, you know, obviously, if enough people looked around and said he's just like me, he's probably got a family at home, people that he cares about, she cares about. I don't know. But that's maybe why we keep on 
getting dressed and getting going to one more march or signing one more petition or voting again. So you know what? I feel um, one of the things that I felt really this week, oh, I'm going to miss that, is that as long as I'm here and I'm back a couple of times a month, that uh, there's always a way in which you all are in the back of my mind as I live my month. Because I, I read the newspaper every day with the scissors next to me so I can take out something because I want to bring it and tell you about it. Or I, I just finished uh, uh, seeing John Adams at the HBO series. Didn't even have time to tell you. You should see the HBO series, John Adams. Tremendously moving. And it's tremendously interesting to see the sectarian... Um, no, not sectarian is the wrong word. The partisan clash between federalists and non-federalists that's continuing until this day, but in a different way and in more complicated circumstances. But So I realize uh, not only do I know many of you personally, and so I certainly will miss seeing you, but I miss having a place to, to be cutting out the paper about and thinking about what do I think about this? Because I'm very it's very touching to me that people want to know what I think about things. One of my teachers, Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi of Blessed Memory, used to say at the end of teaching retreats or workshops, he'd say, probably you all feel happy now and you probably all want to say thank you. That was great. He said, so I want to tell you in advance of that that I am equally thanking you. This is an equal karma exchange that... Um, it so pleases me to be able to teach, and I need you to all come so that I can teach. So whatever it is, with equal karma, uh, may you be peaceful and live with ease, and uh, may we all happily get to meet each other again next January. And I'll see you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.